Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious God, once more we cry out to you to come down and be with us, to fulfill your good promises towards your people, to receive us not in ourselves, but in Jesus our Lord, to cleanse and purify us in every way that we would be sent forth to love and serve you in our loving and serving of others. Plant your word deep within us that you would accomplish all that you desire to do with us and that we would receive with joy all that you call us to do. All this we do ask through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So I wonder if in a few hundred years all of our descendants will look back and think that we must have been an extremely forgetful culture. Why do I wonder this? Well, think about the number of mirrors we have in our homes. Think of the number of mirrors we have everywhere we go. Every bathroom we go into, every living room almost always has some kind of mirror somewhere. Not only do we have mirrors on the walls, we have little portable mirrors that we have in our drawers and we carry mirrors with us. And then we have mirrors in our pockets everywhere we go. The very cameras, the very phones we carry have cameras on them on the front that people I've seen use as mirrors so that they can fix their makeup, fix their hair, and also to take pictures of themselves. And it makes me wonder, like, when people look back, will it be that they'll think, like, man, could these people not remember what they looked like? They had mirrors everywhere. They had little cameras that they carried everywhere they went. They took hundreds of thousands of pictures of themselves doing things, but rarely took pictures of where they were. They were always quick to take a picture of themselves as if they couldn't quite remember what they looked like. But then again, on the other hand, they could look back and have a different perspective on all of these mirrors and all of these selfies and all of these pictures that we take. They might look back and say that we must have been the most vain and narcissistic, narcissistic culture that ever existed. Look how often they had to take pictures of themselves. They must have been so in love with themselves that they had to surround themselves with pictures of themselves all the time. They had to have an image of their face constantly before them. Imagine that. Those two different perspectives that could be laid out before us. But then, both of those things could be true. They're not opposite ends of the spectrum so much as two sides of the same coin. We are forgetful, but we're also extraordinarily vain and narcissistic in and of ourselves. We love to love ourselves, and we love to forget what we look like so that we can go back and look at ourselves. After all, I know this is completely true of myself. I mean, if there's a mirror around, I will most certainly stop and check my hair. I'll most certainly stop and check to see that I look the way that I looked when I left the house to make sure I still look the way I wanted to look. And most certainly, I'm not immune to a selfie. We can all go onto my social media feed and see that I have selfies, that I have pictures of myself in the midst of doing something so that I can look back and see myself and show others what I looked like while I was somewhere, but not necessarily taking the time to take pictures of where I am, to take pictures of the surrounding, surrounding area. I look back at all of my old pictures growing up, and that's what our pictures were. Yeah, there was someone taking a picture of a group of us, but it was focused on where we were, to see the environment we were in, and there were plenty of pictures that we took that didn't have anyone in them that were just of where we were. 
But somewhere along the way, we decided that it was better to take pictures of ourselves in the midst of something as opposed to the thing that was around us, the event itself. But I'm focused on myself. I'm focused on taking a picture of myself instead of what's happening. And Paul, or Paul, St. James, I've been in St. Paul for so long, I forget that there's other writers of the New Testament. St. James drops smack dab in the middle of his opening chapter here toward the smack dab in the section we're reading, I should say, this idea of the mirror. He mentions people seeing a reflection of themselves and immediately forgetting what they look like, neglecting to reflect, you might say, upon who they are, to see that they are someone, but instead they forget what they look like. They go on about their business completely ignoring what they had just seen. And this isn't just an occasional glimpse. He says that they look intently at their own natural face and then go away and forget. They're stopping and studying what they look like. They're paying attention to what they look like. But then they just walk away and forget all that they've seen and neglect it completely. The idea of this mirror is to be a reflection of what we are and to challenge us. But instead, we ignore what the mirror reveals to us, and we walk away. We get distracted by the things going on around us. We get focused on doing other things, as opposed to taking a moment and truly and intently reflecting on what we see in that mirror. And that's true of us today. Not only in the ancient world did they quickly forget what they looked like, but we oftentimes forget what we look like when we look in a mirror. It's easy to forget that the image we see, we forget because of the many, many things we have to do. But when we get down to it, there is something we need to remember about that mirror. That mirror reflects us as we are in and of ourselves. It doesn't reflect what we want to be. It doesn't reflect what we used to be. It just captures the moment right now, right here, of what we look like. And when we recognize what this mirror is ultimately supposed to be in James, it's not a literal mirror at the end of the day. It is the mirror of the Word itself. The Word itself reflects who we are in and of ourselves. When we look through Scripture, we are confronted constantly and continually with a mirror of who we are and what we are. And what we are is sinners in and of ourselves. And I think that's why many of us, when we see the Word and see ourselves reflected, are so quick to forget we don't want to be reminded that we're sinners. We don't want to be reminded that we fail to live up to that very law that we hear about every single week. That we hear that we are to love the Lord our God with our whole being and then to love our neighbors as ourselves. We want to forget about that as soon as we say it. Because to dwell on it, to reflect upon that is to reveal that we continually fail to do that. And that is why, right after we say those words, we immediately turn and say, Lord, have mercy, because we know we have failed. We know, deep down, even if we don't want to fully admit it, that we have failed to do what God has commanded us to do. But when we remember what that image is, when we remember and reflect upon what we see and remember who has made that mirror, who gave us that mirror, we can then be free to remember what we are like. And when we remember what we are like, we will then be enabled to receive what he wants to do about it. And so, starting right there in verse 17, who made this mirror that we are looking into? 
James tells us every good and perfect gift, every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God doesn't change, and he is the one who gave us this mirror. He is the one who gave us the word itself, who thousands of years ago at Mount Sinai gave the original Ten Commandments and then expanded those Ten Commandments into the fullness of what we know as the Mosaic Covenant. And he continually brought to bear upon his people those commandments to confront them, to convict them, to push them away from their sinfulness and to himself. He is the one who made the Ten Commandments and gave them to us because they flow out of who he is in and of himself. Good and perfect gifts come down from God himself. And he is the father of lights. Here I think St. James is thinking of the stars in the sky, the sun and the moon reflecting to us. Because immediately when he says the father of lights with whom there is no variation, all the lights in the sky, they change. They move around. They shift. They're brighter one night. They're dimmer the next. The sun sets. The sun, the moon waxes and wanes back and forth. We see the planets moving in the sky. Some nights they're really bright. If you look in the night sky, you'll see Saturn. It is almost, I mean, it's the brightest star in the sky right now at night. And it's beautiful. But later on in the year, we'll barely be able to see Saturn because of how we relate to each other. It'll be in a different position, and so the reflection of the sunlight coming off of it back to us won't be as bright. And so it varies from time to time in the year. It varies. But with the Father of lights, there is no variation. There is no shadow in who he is. There is no change in who he is. This mirror that he made of the word comes from who he is, and therefore we can trust this word to be what it is, to be a perfect reflection of himself, to remind us of his perfect holiness, his perfect otherness. And yet in that otherness, he comes to us because he made us to be relatable to him. Our God is a God of community in the sense that he is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he created us, his image bearers, to bear that community as well, to become part and parcel of his community to receive from him his good gifts, to receive from him his love. And likewise, to return love back to him, to return community to him, to relate to him, to spend time with him, to be interrelated with one another. He created us for that, but we fell away. And that's why James says in verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. See, this God, who is the father of lights, who changes in no way, exerts his will over us and brings us forth through the word of truth, that is, through the gospel itself. He uses the gospel to bring us forth, to change us, to renew us, to make us his new creation. And that's why he's talking about here, the new birth, that he brings us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That reminds us of those commandments in the Old Testament, there in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, when God says to bring the first fruits there at the Pentecost time, to bring them to the temple, to offer them to the Lord, to know that those first fruits are representative of the great blessing of harvest that the Lord is going to bring upon you. And so you bring the first fruits and give it to the Lord. And so the Christians there in James's time, they were to be a kind of first fruits of his creatures, of all creation, believers are the first fruits. And that travels on down to us today. We are the first fruits of his creation. 
The old creation is sitting there seeing God renew hearts and minds, and we are part and parcel of that. The first fruits who are being offered representing the great renewal of all things. No other aspect of creation participates in renewal right now. But we do. We are participating in the grand renewal that God is accomplishing through the work of Jesus Christ. And he is the cause of it. He brings us forth and makes us those first fruits. He makes us the first fruits of all of creation, the receivers of the great redemption, the great renewal that all of creation is looking toward and groaning for and desiring. It sees us changed and the creation knows it too will be changed because we are the first fruits. And so God is the one who has made that mirror and used this mirror of the word to change us because it's out of the word of truth that we are changed. So what all does this mirror reveal for us then? St. James is known for his practicalness and so he quickly moves from a little bit of theological truth into telling us what to do with theological truth. James writes very differently from St. Paul. Paul likes to put together most of his didactic teaching. Most of the stuff about theology kind of comes all at the front end of his letter and then the back end is all about what you do with what he's been talking about. Of course, it's not a perfect division. When he's talking about the things that God has done, he'll intersperse commands here and there, what we should do. And on the back side, where it's mostly telling us what to do, he'll intersperse more theology throughout. But the general breakdown is the front of St. Paul's letters are, here's what God has done. Here's the theology. And the back end is, now here's what you do with all of that, of what God has done for you. Here's how you respond to it. Here's what your life will look like. James just goes back and forth. A little bit of theology, a little bit of command. A little bit more theology, a little bit more command. Helping us to bring it all together in a different kind of way. And so he talks about us being brought forth. And then immediately turns and says, Well, know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So he tells us to be quick to hear, to sit down and listen, and slow to speak. Quick to hear. What are we to hear? He's saying here, hear the implanted word. Hear that word of truth. Receive that word of truth, that gospel that renews you and saves you from who you are in and of yourself. Be quick to hear, but slow to speak, slow to anger. To speak too quickly when you're to be sitting down and listening is to jump forward into error, to jump forward and not understanding what God is telling you. And so therefore be slow to speak and slow to anger because your anger is not going to produce the righteousness of God. It's not going to produce the kind of living that God desires for his people. It's not going to be a reflection of who God is that he has given to you righteousness. And you will fall into error, you will fall into sin, you will fall into living in that anger and that frustration because you have not been quick to hear. And so put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and sit and receive with meekness the implanted word. Receive with humility what this word is revealing about you. That it would be implanted deep within to change you, to renew you, and to save your souls, to save your very person. 
To hear about the implanted word is to remember Jesus' parable of the sower who threw the seed out in various places and most places it didn't take. It'd spring up real quick and then die off. But then when it fell onto good ground, it sank down and grew roots and grew up and produced a harvest of 30, 60, and 100 fold in various kinds of soil there in that good soil in different places. When he says this about the implanted word, it means that the word needs to sink down deep within us to go down inside of us that it might renew us and change us. We can sit here and hear the word week in and week out, but if we don't dwell in it and let it sink down, it'll just be a sprinkling on the surface of the ground and it will might spring up or the birds of the air might come and take it or the sun will come out and scorch it. But the word won't last unless it's deeply planted, unless it sinks down and we dwell in it and it dwells in us. And so receive that implanted word so it can reveal what you need so that you can be saved. And again, James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Hearers only won't have the word planted deep within them. They'll deceive themselves thinking, oh, well, I heard the word and that's good enough for me. I don't have to do what the word says. I only have to hear it. And this is where he shifts into that. Here's what the mirror does. The person who only hears the word is deceiving himself. He's like the person who looks in a mirror intently, sees his natural face, and then forgets about it. He drives it out of his mind. He turns away from it. The one who only and merely hears the word is not changed by it. He might see the law. He might hear about the gospel. The one who hears will see it momentarily and think, well, that's nice. But then they turn and forget about it. They forget what their natural face is. They forget what they are in and of themselves. And thus the word does not come to apply to them because they can't remember that they need this word. They can't remember that they need it to dwell inside of them, to grow down deep inside of themselves. For without that deep growing down inside of themselves, they'll be mere hearers and will forget. They'll turn away. They won't ultimately be saved because the Word did not plant itself down because they forgot what the Word revealed to them. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. St. James turns us away from that one who forgets to the one who remembers. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty. Here the word law is not about the commandments per se. The law, the word law gets used in different ways, and when a Jew uses the word law, Sometimes he's off, he can be talking about the Torah, the whole of the law, which includes the promises and the commands of God. The first five books are called the Torah for a reason. They contain both command and promise. Both are sitting there, and I think that's how James is using this when he says the perfect law, the law of liberty. He's talking about the Torah itself, the commands and the promises of God. And so when one looks into that perfect law, he will hear the commandments, and we'll see that he has not fulfilled what God has called him to do. But then when he starts bearing that burden and that conviction of what he has not done, what he has failed in doing, he will hear the word of the gospel alongside that. He will hear that Christ went to the cross to take away that failure. He went to the cross to take away your sin, to change you, to renew you, to make you into who God desires you to be. So you no longer depend upon yourself. You no longer rest in yourself, but you rest in Christ 
who has brought to you a law of liberty, of renewal, a law that will cause you to persevere, a law that will guide you every moment of your life. And it is a law of liberty. Yes, it gives you guardrails. It tells you what kind of life God desires, but that kind of life is the life that leads to blessing. N.T. Wright, in his, one of his commentaries, spoke of how the law is liberty, even our everyday laws. Think about if we didn't have laws for driving. If you could just drive wherever you wanted on the road, it'd be mass chaos, wouldn't it? If there wasn't a law that said, we drive on the right side of the road, going one direction and the other side is on the left going the opposite direction. That is a law that creates freedom because without that law, it would be nothing but chaos. No one could get going more than five miles an hour for fear of someone coming toward them and hitting them head on and them having to swerve back and forth. But instead, with a simple law that says, if you're going forward, you go that way. If you're going the other way, you're on the other side of the road. It creates a freedom to drive, a freedom to get to where you need to go quickly and easily. And that's what God's law is meant to do for us. It tells us how to live in order that we would be in that life of blessing. To kick against that law, to resist it, to do our own thing, is to become a forgetter of the law, a forgetter of the promises of God, a forgetter of the kind of life God desires. And to become a forgetter is to fall away from the blessings of God, to fall away from the joy and the goodness He is bringing into your life. Being a doer doesn't earn that blessing. It simply places you on the pathway in blessing. It places you in right relation to be a doer who acts and not a hearer who forgets. And so that mirror reveals to us what it is God desires us to do and what it is that God has done for us. And hearing about that mirror and James telling us to be doers who act, not merely hearers, he turns and says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And so what do we do at this mirror? We embrace it. We look and we don't forget and we confront the sinfulness within. And so if you think you're religious, but yet you go off with your mouth all the time, you gossip and you lie and you steal with your tongue and you berate people and tear them down with your tongue. You don't speak truth with your tongue. You're deceiving your own heart, and your religion is worthless. James here is confronting the hypocrisy that exists at all times in all the church. Those people who say they are Christians who merely hear the word but are not changed by it, who then go out and do the very things the word has told them not to do, and then they act like they haven't done anything wrong. That is the nature of a hypocrite. They're not using the mirror to reflect to them what they are and remembering and thus turning to the Lord. They're looking and forgetting and doing their own thing. The hypocrite is not the one who falls into sin and repents of sin because we're going to fall into sin and we're going to repent. That's what we're supposed to do. We do that when we're looking at the mirror. The hypocrite is the one who falls into sin and acts like they have done nothing wrong who then keeps saying, well, yeah, that thing is sin, but that's not actually what I was doing. I was doing something else. They make up excuses for the sins they commit. That person's religion is worthless, for they are not converted. They are not living the life. They are not following the law of liberty. They are not perse persevering as a doer. But religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
I love when the Bible uses a word that society hates, religion. True religion is this. Pure and undefiled religion is this. We're religious people. The mirror reveals that we are called to particular actions and to a particular way of life. And to have pure and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is only a piece of the puzzle. There's more things that we do as believers. But here James brings to bear on the idea of being utterly compassionate toward those who have nothing. To those who are afflicted with the struggles of this world, who are afflicted by the sin that just simply exists outside of them, coming to attack them and assault them. We are to be compassionate on those kinds of people to visit them, to be with them, to share with them, but also to keep oneself unstained from the world. For our God is a God who is holy in all that he is, and he calls us to be holy as well. And so we keep ourselves unstained from the world by following that perfect law, by letting that perfect law convict, by letting that perfect law drive us to Christ over and over so that we can repent and turn to the Lord and live and rest in grace and be changed. James, and I think St. Paul ultimately and all of Scripture ultimately has this idea of us, to called, of us being called to develop virtue, to walk the path of righteousness, to walk the path of the law, to follow God in such a way that we are putting to death our sins, putting to death that which is within us in order that we would more fully live. Amen. In ancient days, the idea of virtue was doing that which was ultimately the right thing to do no matter the situation you were in. And thus we are given all the virtues in Scripture. We are given the commandments of the things that we're supposed to do. And we are empowered to do that very thing. We are given the Spirit and the grace of God to walk this path of righteousness, to walk this path that would keep us unstained from the world. And when we find ourselves stained by the world, we turn away and we repent and we confess. That's part and parcel of walking this life of virtue. That God has empowered you to see the reality of your own heart. And to turn from that to the new reality of God's world, the new reality of God's redemption, the reality that God is replacing your old heart with a new one, a new one that loves him, that desires to do what he wants us to do, and we are called to live out of that. And so we follow the way of virtue. We follow the way of the new heart, the commandments of God, to love God with our whole being, to love our neighbor as ourself. And ever by ever, Little by little, ever so slowly, we will grow in that virtue as we challenge our old ways, as we challenge what is found within in and of ourselves, as we challenge that with the word, we will slowly be changed more and more that we would rejoice in the salvation given to us. Amen. And so the mirror is there to reflect who we are in and of ourselves, but also to reflect to us what God is going to do in us when we receive that truth. And the truth is we are all sinners in need of salvation. And the truth is God has brought that salvation to us in Jesus Christ. And by Jesus, we are changed and transformed into the kind of people who will not be mere hearers, but will be doers. James wants faith and faithfulness to bind together that we would live out what God has called us to do because he is the one who gave us that mirror that reveals to us the reality of our need for salvation and the reality of the salvation that has been given. And so lay hold of that mirror, lay hold of this word of truth and be changed and be brought forth continually to live a new life, to be a one who hears and is quick to hear that word, 
and to be saved by the implanting of that word in you. So may we be those kind, that kind of people, the people who act and do what the word calls us to do and live in the reality that Christ is ours and that we are his and that we find our rest and our renewal only in Christ by hearing and doing what the word calls us to do. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.